0: You may open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. I am helpless to do what I want to do tonight, unless the Lord blesses the effort. The greatest news that I could possibly ever tell you is that you have eternal life, and you can know it. And I want to try to tell you that you have it and you can know it. 1 Peter 2, I read these verses already to you. I'm going to read them again so that you can see them with your own eyes. There is no fine line between the righteous and the wicked. And I'm sorry if I am any cause of you thinking that there is a fine line between the righteous and the wicked. There is no fine line. It's a great gulf. Especially for those who lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ and seek to live a righteous life to please him. They don't look like the wicked at all. First Peter chapter two and verse six. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. And he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Amen. You do not have to fear that you were appointed unto the wrath that's described in first. Peter two eight, if you believe that Jesus Christ is precious. Salvation is entirely wrapped up in the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you believe on Him tonight and love Him and want to obey Him, there is not a chance that you're not one of His elect. Right. God Almighty has laid a chief cornerstone in His Zion that is above, and that cornerstone is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is elect, He's the chosen of God, and He is precious. To you that believe, He is precious. To those that do not believe, He is a rock of offense, a stone of stumbling. They disobey Him. They stumble at His Word. They can't stand Him. That's no fine line, brethren. No fine line. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ at all? Do you love to hear about Him? Do you love to sing about Him? Then forget your fears and lay hold of eternal life tonight by faith. And assure yourself of it. You can have the full assurance of faith that you are God's elect. Your name is in the book of life. And heaven is waiting for you, so that we can sing about it not as, I hope I can be there, but I can't wait to get there. Look in your Bibles at John chapter 14 and verse 6. and the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, our eyes must be focused upon Him because He is the only way of salvation. He is the only door to heaven. He is the only way to the presence of God. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life, as He's about to tell us. John fourteen six. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The Lord Jesus Christ is the way to God our Father. The Lord Jesus Christ is the basis for our adoption. God the Father would not adopt and then discard. God the Father adopted to keep forever. Jesus Christ will say in heaven, Behold, I am the children which Thou hast given Me. Amen. He is the way to heaven. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by Him. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. Peter and John are preaching to those stubborn and rebellious Jews that were appointed to stumble over the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what they had to say. Verse 12 of Acts 4. Neither is there salvation in any other for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Amen. The name is the Lord Jesus Christ. The name is not Moses, it's not Abraham, and it's not any of the fathers of the Jews. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not Pope Paul, Pope John Paul the 2nd nor Pope Benedict the 16th. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, Mary Baker Eddy, or Ellen G. Harmon White. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Lay hold of Him tonight and believe on Him. He is the Son of God, and He's the returning judge of the universe, but He is your Savior, and He's precious. And whosoever believeth on Him shall not be confounded. Whosoever believeth on Him shall not be ashamed. Believe on Him tonight. Lay hold of eternal life. Come over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, I want you to know that salvation is all wrapped up in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that bled for us. He is the one that lived for us. And He is the one that lives forevermore for us. He is at the right hand of God the Father making intercession for us at this very hour. He will be making intercession for you in the hour of your greatest fears. He will be making intercession for you when you pass through the curtain of death. He will never fail. He will bring every one given to Him to the Father. The Lord Jesus Christ that we worship is not a failure. God gave Him the elect to save, and He will certainly save every one of them. Put your trust in Him. He's never turned one away. Show me the verse. Show me the verse. For He ever turned one away. And if you think Matthew 7 is talking about anyone that ever believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are grossly mistaken. When he said, many will say unto me. They never put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, nor laid hold of him. They were self-justifying, self-righteous Pharisees who hated and despised other men and thought that they were better and deserved heaven. Let's come as humble poor sinners and beg him for mercy. He'll never forsake one that begs for mercy. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. Paul told Timothy, two ministers... Rejoicing in the goodness of God and their salvation. For there is one God. Do you believe that? And one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. That's our mediator. There is a man between us. He will not let any be lost that comes to him and begs him for eternal life and puts their trust in him. And I'll explain exactly what I mean by that before I'm done. Come back to John chapter 6 and verse 37 John chapter 6 and verse 37 I have preached this chapter to you not too many months ago I hope that you can remember enough that I don't have to take time on the context John 6:37 all that the father giveth me shall come to me I want you to understand that salvation is based on the fact that God gave you to Jesus Christ to save before the world began God was not surprised in the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve sinned. God did not invent the idea of Jesus Christ dying because he got surprised by Adam and Eve's sin. Before he even created Adam and Eve, he had already chosen you in Christ Jesus before the world began and given you to Christ. He allowed sin to come into the world in order to display his magnificent salvation upon the elect and to let the others get what they deserve and what we all deserve. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's the certainty of the truth of this book. Amen. Men today do not want to teach the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination because it does not make friends with the world. We don't want to make friends with the world. Amen. We want to make friends with God. Amen. And so we are going to preach, believe, and trust His gospel. And it has election in it. And here it is in 637, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. We know that all don't come So we very clearly understand that not all were given to Jesus Christ. But you were, brethren, because you've come to Jesus Christ. And I have preached this to you. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me and listen to these words. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Is there comfort in those words or not? Show me a verse where he ever cast anyone out. That came to him and fell on his feet and confessed their sins. Him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. Is no wise good enough for you? Or do you have a reason that he's going to cast you out? I've got verses for you before the night's over. For those of you whose hearts are condemning you, I have a verse because God knows that some of you have such a melancholy curse that your own hearts accuse you. But I want to tell you something. God is greater than your heart. And that's what the Bible tells me. God is greater than your heart and he knows all things. All right. Amen. But that's getting ahead of myself. I want to stay right here and have you look at that verse. Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Go to first John chapter five. What in the world are the words of Jonathan Crosby gonna do for the assurance of your souls? Let me tell you how much. None. None. So don't get tired of turning the pages tonight because my words can't give you assurance, but I'll tell you someone's words who can. The comforting words of God in the pages of Holy Scripture. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. That's why we turn the pages. 1 John 5, 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. Do you mean that John... Wrote his letters to believers? Right. Mm-hmm. Amen. You mean he didn't write his letters to God-haters? No way. Or is the New Testament written to believers? Amen. He tells us right here. Look what he says. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. Why is he writing? That ye may know that ye have eternal life. Why else is he writing? And that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Now, is that simple enough? The Bible is written to you and to me. It's to tell us that we have eternal life. Not how to get it, but that we already have it because of what he's done for us. And that we might believe yet more upon him. And tonight I say to you, believe! He's precious! Lay hold of him by faith! And lay hold of eternal life by laying hold of him. Because him that cometh unto me I will in no wise... Cast out. Romans 10. You know how fast the time is going to go tonight in light of what I... I don't care how long this takes. If I have to quit tonight and start next Sunday, we'll do it again. If I have to quit then and do it again, we'll do it. I want you established, believing that your name is in the book of life. It's no fine line. I hope I can convince you of that from the words of Scripture. Romans 10 and verse 11. For the Scripture saith... I wonder if we've encountered this verse before. I think we saw the Scripture saying something in 1 Peter chapter 2. Romans ten eleven. for the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on Him shall not be ashamed. You're never going to be ashamed if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. His righteousness will be in your place when you stand before Almighty God. Your name will be in the book of life, covered with the blood of the Son of God. Put your trust in Him. Whosoever believeth in him shall never shall not be ashamed.. Amen. Now let's come over to second Peter chapter one. Second Peter chapter one, these are all introductory verses to lay a foundation, and we're just going to keep going. Second Peter chapter one, you know this one. I could read from verse five to the end of the chapter because it's all rather related. But I think I can give you the comfort we need in verses 10 and 11. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, there's only a small chance that you'll fall. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. And look what it says. For so, an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. An entrance will be given to you abundantly into the eternal kingdom of heaven. Abundant entrance. Not barely squeaking in. Not crawling through a crack in the door. Or coming in through a window. An abundant entrance. Based on what? Doing these things. These things are eight in number. They begin with faith. In the first part of verse 5. Where it says, and beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Virtue. And a virtue, knowledge. And it goes on and describes eight things. Eight things that most of you in this room already do. You do them. He's just tell, Peter is telling you, give diligence to do them. Don't be unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. It's one thing to shout amen. It's one thing to preach about Jesus Christ. But it's another thing to do the things that He wants us to do. And so Peter said, as long as I'm alive... I know that you already know these eight things. I already know that you know how to make your calling and election sure. But I'm going to keep preaching the same message. I'm going to keep reminding you. You know what faith is. It's to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It's not a mystical experience. It's to believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. That came and visited the earth. And He deserves your life. Some men make that decision. And believe that, trust Him, look at Him and see the Son of God, and others look at Him and find something very offensive, something very boring, a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. They don't want any interest in it. It's not a fine line between the righteous and the wicked. It's a great chasm. Try it sometime. Go to the mall tonight and lay the Word of God on people that are walking by. They don't care about the Lord Jesus Christ. If He's precious to you tonight, your name is in the book of life. He's never been precious to any reprobate. They can't they they despise him. They cannot stand him. Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. You can make your election sure, not to God but to yourself by doing these things. And if you do these things, you shall never fall. Nothing is ever going to happen in your journey to heaven. Nothing. There's going to be no holes in the road, no bridges washed out, no drawbridges up because he didn't like you you are going to make it all the way. Amen. Right. You'll never fall. This is the Word of God. I believe Genesis 1-1, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. I believe creation. I despise evolution. And I believe these verses right here. that if I do these things, I'll never fall. Right. I know that God, by the rest of the testimony of Scripture, knows I cannot keep them perfectly. But He knows that I can keep them in general. He knows that I can have a general character that is based on faith, that is based on virtue, that is based on knowledge godliness, patience, temperance, brotherly kindness, and charity. And you can as well. And many of you already do that. You already do that. He just wants to exhort us to do more of it so that we can have greater assurance about eternal life that's waiting for us. Because that's the character of the Savior we're going to meet. He lived a life of faith. He added to that faith great virtue. And of that virtue, He had great knowledge. And so forth and so on through the list of eight things. It's not uncommon for God's people to question their salvation and worry about eternal judgment to come. It's not uncommon. I'll show you verses. What do you think that verse right there is for? You know that verse right there is for people who are not very sure. And do you want to be sure? Do you want to make your calling and election sure? There Peter tells you how to do it. If this sermon is received and studied by faith, there's much hope in the gospel for you that have doubts about your salvation. There's much to give you, personal confidence. I cannot give it to you. I can tell you some pretty strong things because the Apostle Paul said some pretty strong things about his fellow laborers, and it's pretty easy to look at a life and tell where there's a child of God and where there isn't. It is not a fine line. And and if I have caused you to think that it is a fine line, I am sorry. If you're living the carnal Christian life, It is a fine line. But if you're living a life of submission and service to the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not a fine line. The wicked never do it. They cannot stand even thinking about it. The constraints of the law of Jesus Christ on them make them chafe, And they fight and they hate him. The kings of the earth stood up against the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not talking to carnal Christians tonight because I have no assurance for them. I'm talking to all of you believers that doubt your salvation. Those that love this world and talk about it and after every service, they want to talk about their job and things like that. I'm not even preaching to them tonight. I don't care if they're listening. I don't care if they're here. I'm preaching to you believers that love the Lord Jesus Christ, that read your Bibles... That think that Jesus Christ is precious, that meditate upon him in your heart, that love righteousness, that love heaven, hate sin and iniquity, and you want to be with him forever and eternity. And amen. You fear God and tremble before his word. What you hear preach from the pulpit you want to put into practice, you are the righteous. Your names are in the book of life. I just need to convince you of it by the word of God. The Arminian scheme, you gotta blow it all out of your mind. The idea. That a man does something to guarantee his salvation is a nauseating delusion and a doctrinal heresy. Right. The idea that you can make some momentary decision and guarantee your salvation, it is not taught in the Word of God. Amen. God doesn't care about your momentary decision. He doesn't care about you inviting Jesus into your heart. No one was ever saved by inviting Jesus into their heart. Amen. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, which they corrupt, which we reclaim, because it's our verse. Right. When it says that Jesus stands at the, door, at, at the door and knocks, He is not talking to sinners. He is talking to the church at Laodicea. Right. The church at Laodicea was already saved. But they were lacking in fellowship and a relationship with Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was sa- standing at the door of that church, saying, if you will let me come in, I can give you riches you do not know yet. Amen. That's what's under consideration there. This Arminian idea. That you can play the play the right tune in the organ and get somebody to invite Jesus into their heart, then they can write down the date on which they were saved and think that that's the assurance of their salvation. That's all man-oriented. It's false. It's false. Do you know what people say today? Do you know you're saved? The answer is yes. I did such and such when I was such and such years old. You're kidding me. I thought there was only one way to heaven. I'll tell you, when you get to heaven, nobody's going to be saying anything about what they did. They're going to be singing everything about what He did. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain and hath redeemed us to God. The God of heaven has loved His elect from the foundation of the world. He does not love those that are in hell, and He never did love them. That is an absurd blasphemy. That is taught by men that do not want to meet the God of heaven. The God of heaven does not love the men in hell. That's why they're in hell. If He loved them in hell, He would have delivered them from hell. He sent them to hell because that's what they deserve. The truth being told, we all deserve it. Right. But the God of heaven sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die for His elect. All that he, the Father gave Him to die for. Jesus Christ didn't die for those in hell. If Jesus Christ died for those in hell, then what sins are they paying for? Right. Jesus paid for their sins. Amen. The ones that are in heaven. The ones that are in hell, no one ever paid for their sins. They're in hell because of their sins. And then God the Father sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts in time to regenerate us and give us a new heart, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And we turn our eyes heavenward. And we know that God is our Father, that we are His children, and that we want to live and serve for Him. That's the Spirit that is sent into our hearts in regeneration. God does those three things only for His elect. The world teaches that He does those three things for all men. If that's the truth, then those in hell have as much right to sing about the love of God, the blood of Christ, and the work of the Spirit as those in heaven. And that's absurd. That's blasphemy. We've got to blow all that out of your mind. You don't look back at anything you've done. You look at what Christ has done. The Son of God has visited earth. And we lay hold of salvation by running to Him. We lay hold of it. We don't earn it. We don't get it. And it doesn't start there. Salvation for the elect began before the world was formed. The price was paid for your sins 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary. You were given a new man, not by anything that you initiated, but by something God initiated according to his own will, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Amen. Amen. God was not surprised in Eden. Do not ever think that. The great salvation is no fine line. Look at Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Unto you that believe, he is precious. Amen. But unto them that be disobedient, he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Romans chapter 9 verse 21 Look at these words Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor Does a potter when he's working with clay have the right to take one lump to take a lump of clay pull some out and make a beautiful vessel take some out and make an ugly vessel Does the potter have the right to do that with clay? The question and its answer is very simple. Hath not the potter power over the clay? Of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. What is the answer to that question? Yes, the potter has that kind of authority, right, and power. Verse 22. In light of that, what if God, willing to show his wrath... And to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. In light of one lump of clay and God taking some and making a vessel of honor and a vessel of dishonor, we immediately have another question. What if God, and it's not really a question, it's really explaining something to you. Right. In light of the question about the potter and the clay. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? There are the non-elect. Verse 23: "And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory. You, There's two classes of mankind right there. Anybody says it's not fair for God to split mankind? They do not understand the nature of sin and how much we have rebelled against the God of heaven. Do you feel sorry for the devil and his angels? There's two classes of angels. There's the holy and, the, and the elect angels. And there are the fallen angels that are reserved in chains unto judgment of the great day. And they are of much more value, power, might, and glory than our men. But there are two classes of angels. And the one is called the elect and holy angels because God chose them and kept them in their holiness and He let the others fall and they are reserved to everlasting punishment. And so it is with men. God has made mankind and we stood up in the Garden of Eden and rebelled against the God of heaven. We defied Him. He drowned the earth in the days of Noah and saved eight alive. And He saved those eight because of one. Only Noah was found to be righteous in that generation. And now we come to this passage and it tells us God is willing What if God, willing, He wants to show His wrath against sin because it displays what a holy God He is. And so some of mankind who rebelled against Him, who chose death over life, He offered them eternal life in the Garden of Eden with the tree of life, they rebelled against Him. And he's formed them to make his wrath and his power known. But verse 23 tells us he wants to make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. And then Paul says, verse 24, Even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Notice the little word of. Of the Jews and of the Gentiles. Of. Out of them. God has chosen some of the Jews and some of the Gentiles to be the vessels of mercy, which will be the recipients of his glory and his grace throughout all eternity. There is, a, there is no fine line in salvation, brethren. It's a vessel of honor, it's a vessel of dishonor. There's no stuff in between that is, I'm not quite sure what it is. There are vessels of wrath and there are vessels of glory. There is nothing in between called, I'm not sure. There is no fine line in salvation. Look at Acts 13. Do you know what a tithe is? Does everybody know what a tithe is? I'm not going to get more than a tithe done tonight. I don't care. Amen. <clears throat> Acts chapter 13. There's no fine line here. Right. Right. Acts 13. Verse 44. Oh, brethren. Do you, do you know what, where we are in Acts 13? We're in a city called Antioch. And it's not Paul's home church. Paul's home church was Antioch of Syria. We are across the Mediterranean Sea in Antioch of Pisidia. And the Apostle Paul has entered into a synagogue and sat down in the back. And when they were done reading the scriptures, they said to Paul, Do you have any word of exhortation for the people? And he said, I think I might have a few words to say. He stood up and asked them to lock the doors in the back and he preached to them Jesus Christ. And here's what we read about this city. Verse 44, And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. These are Gentiles, brethren, our ancestors. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold, and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life. Believe. When a man believes the gospel, it's because God ordained him to eternal life. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He looked at those Jews, those Jews that were disobedient of the word, those Jews that considered Jesus Christ a stumbling block, a rock of offense. They despised him. Look at what it says about their character. They were filled with envy. They spake against whatever Paul said. They contradicted it, contradicting and blaspheming don't try to tell me there's a fine line between the righteous and the wicked. Right. Right. The Apostle Paul turned to them and waxed bold in the Spirit and said, you have judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Right. God never purposed to give it to you, but you've judged yourselves unworthy of it by your own rights. Right. Because look at the way they treated the preaching of Jesus Christ. Yeah. But then the Gentiles were glad. Yeah. Do you get glad at the preaching of Jesus Christ? Yeah. Do you believe Jesus? Do you know what it means about you? You were ordained to eternal life. Right. Praise the Lord. Amen. Look at the difference. There's not this mass in between. Because when Jesus Christ is pressed upon men, they either believe Him or they hate Him. I mean the Jesus Christ, the Bible. Right. Listen to Jesus that's preached in this world. You can make anyone like Him. That effeminate little faggot that hangs in the pictures of so many people's homes that is not the Jesus of the Bible. Amen. We are told in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that the world is preaching another Jesus, another gospel by another spirit. We are going to preach the Jesus Christ of the Bible. And the apostle Paul preached him and look at the difference in the response. I don't know of anyone in here who contradicts and blasphemes and gets envious and speaks against everything that is spoken in the gospel. But that was a mark of those that judged themselves unworthy of everlasting life. I believe that many of you, most of you, are glad and glorify the word of the Lord. I heard it glorified several times tonight. Do you know why you glorified the word of the Lord? There's few men left that love to glorify this book. All they want to do is rewrite it and come up with a new version and see if they can make some dollars. There's no fine line, brethren. There's no fine line. Look at First Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1. Just a few more. I am sorry about the conditions. Not really. 1 Corinthians one eighteen, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Now, now hold hold on to make sure we understand that verse. To those that are saved, is the gospel a power by itself? Or to those that are saved, they perceive and understand and see in the gospel the power of God. That's what it means. How do we know that's what it means? Because of the first half of the verse that says, The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Is the gospel actually foolishness? Never. Is the gospel ever foolish? Never. Never. But unto them that perish, it is foolishness, because they receive it as foolishness. They hear about a God in heaven thinking men are sinners, and that if they don't repent, they're going to hell, and Jesus Christ coming to die on the cross to pay for their sins, being raised from the dead, sitting in heaven, and God's going to come back and judge the earth? Right. Right. Tell me another one. And they laugh about it. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Those that are lost and going to hell think the preaching of this gospel of Jesus Christ of Nazareth is a foolish and stupid thing. But unto them which are saved, they receive it and understand it and believe it and see it as the power of God in saving men. That is no fine line. You do not have to wonder about it. I'm not mad at anyone. I don't know how to preach quietly. I'm not mad at anyone except error and you're doubting and you're doubting souls. First Corinthians one 18. Look at that verse. You know, that verse should be enough for the preaching of the cross is them that perish foolishness. That's why our congregation is so small, but unto us, which are saved, it is the power of God. Someone who is already saved Someone who is saved, like those in 1 John chapter 5 and 13, when they hear the preaching of the cross, all they can see is the power of God. Look at the power of God in the virgin birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at the power of God in giving Him so much understanding that when He was 12, He could confound the doctors of the law. Look at the power of God in allowing Him to walk through a crowd and they couldn't even touch Him. Look at the power of God that rent the rocks when He hung on the cross of of Calvary. Look at the power of God when He said, I am He. And they all fall backward in the Garden of Gethsemane. Don't you see the power of God? They laid Him in the tomb. They sealed it with a Roman seal. And He rose from the dead three days later. Do you see the power of God in the Gospel? And 40 days after that, He went into heaven straight out of their sight. They watched Jesus Christ go up into the clouds. Angels had to come and tell them to save their necks. And get their eyes back down on earth. Because he was going into heaven. And he sits there right now. And they see in all that the power of God. Then in 70 AD, those men that put him to death, that made up a false, a false, false accusations against him in the courts of Pilate and Herod, the Roman armies came under the direction of the Lord Jesus Christ, who had a subordinate named Titus Vespasian Caesar, and wiped that city from the earth. The city of Jerusalem was wiped out after Jesus Christ had told exactly how it would happen. They saw in the gospel the power of God. Right. Because Jesus said, This gospel, of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world, and then shall the end come. And I'm going to tell you something. Everyone on earth that would that believe that Jesus Christ was precious was reading the daily accounts of what was happening in Judea because God wiped out his enemies. He had said he would do that, and he did do it. The gospel was preached by the apostles before 70 A.D. And then the end came. The end in that context being the end of Jerusalem. Right. When you hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you receive in it? Do you see in it? Do you understand from it the power of God? Right. You know what? According to just this one text, that tells me that if it's the power of God to you, you're already saved. No one else would even want to hear the story. If Rick Warren tried to preach the way we do, to his 20 20 or 30,000, you know, because I'm not charming and eloquent like Rick Warren, 10,000 would disappear. So we're down to to 10. We're down to 10,000. Then he would tell them about God electing a people before the foundation of the world and saving them and not losing a single one of them. And we're down to 500. And then he would lay on the 500 that are left what they ought to be doing to please that God of heaven. And everything we've been doing in this church is an invention of men. And we ought to humble ourselves and fast and pray and ask God to have mercy upon us. They'd be down to about our number. Because of this verse. The preaching of the cross is them that perish. Do you know how powerful that cross is? Do you know how much it affects of your life? The Apostle Paul said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. The cross is a whole lot more than believing that Jesus died on it for your sins. The cross also includes, what are you going to do to live for that Jesus? That's the cross of Jesus Christ. And when you hear it, do you see it at the power of God? One more verse. 1 John chapter 3. One more passage. First John chapter three. I'm sorry for going so slowly, but I really don't care. Hey, I am sorry because there's so much to get there's so much more, but do you understand it is no fine line in the response to the gospel yeah, I hear some i just a second I'm getting a word of wisdom. The word of wisdom is. Some of you say, well, the reason I believe the gospel and that I enjoy the gospel is because I was brought up in a home that taught it to me since I was a child, and it's not really a work of grace or a work of God in my heart. (laughs) I wonder if Isaac ever accused Abraham of that. I wonder if Jacob accused Isaac of that. I wonder if Judah, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and the rest accused Jacob of that. I wonder if Caleb accused Judah of that. I wonder if David accused Jesse of that. Let me tell you something about God's election. It runs in families. Right. Election runs in families, so it shouldn't surprise you one bit. But I'll tell you something. You can have an elect family of God and once in a while. God will demonstrate the power of grace. And someone will despise the Jesus Christ, the Bible, within a family that was taught the truth from the beginning. Right. Don't give, don't give the Lord excuses like that, and don't let your own soul lie to you. 1 John chapter 3. If you, I asked you to read it last night in, our, in my preparatory email for all of you. I would suggest that you read it again this week. I want to tell you that verses 1 through 10 describe the fact that righteous living, righteous living is how you know that you have eternal life. Look at verse 6. "...whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him." Verse 8, "...he that committeth sin is of the devil." Verse 9, "...whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil." Now let me ask you something. Is it a fine line between the children of God and the children of the devil? Is that a fine line? Or is that the very opposites? These verses here that say, he sinneth not. Do you know what happens? God's people come along and read a verse like that, he that committeth sin is of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. And they think, well then I'm a child of the devil. Because I've sinned. I sinned once yesterday and I sinned three days ago. Or I sinned an hour ago. But did that sin bother you? Did you confess that sin? Did you repent of that sin and did it vex you that you had committed that sin? And did your purpose in your heart before God you didn't want to do that sin again? That's what it's talking about here. Can I prove that? Can I prove that within the book of 1 John that he did not mean that anyone was going to be without sin? Yes. From chapter 1 and verse 8, it says if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But now John, how can you say in chapter 1, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, and then say in chapter 3, that if we're not without sin, it's a double negative, but if we're not without sin, we're the children of the devil. How can you, how can you say that? And the way we understand it is by going to 1 John chapter 3 and understanding a lifestyle of sinning. Uh, I, Sinning without regard, without regard for God, sinning without vexing your heart, sinning without a conscience, sinning without confessing it, sinning without turning back to the Lord. Just a lifestyle style of unrestrained sin that shows, by evidence, a child of the devil. That's what's under consideration. That's verses 1 through 10. Righteousness is the proof of a child of God and eternal life. Verses 11 through 24 are the love of the brethren. Look at how plain it's stated. Look at 14. 1 John 3.14 We know. Now that sounds like he knew something. Or was he guessing at it? Hoping for it? Maybe. Look at 1 John 3.14 We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. The greatest evidence in this book For knowing that you're a child of God is your compassion for your brothers. Do you care about the others in this room? Do you care when they have health threats? Do you care when they're financially wanting? Do you care when they're sad? Do you love them? Do you want to serve them? Are you happy to be with them? Do you like to encourage them? Do you love to see them happy? Do you love the brethren? It tells you you can know that you've passed from death into life. Verse 17. Verse 17. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Now, that's pretty simple to understand, isn't it? Because God is love, and God loves even his enemies. If we do not love our brethren, if we close up our heart and say, I'm not going to help, I'm not going to help them. How can the love of God be in us? How can we be a child of God? How can we have passed from death into life when we're showing death by our actions? That's the question. The question is obvious. How dwells the love of God in Him? It doesn't dwell in Him. Verse 18, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Let's not talk about loving the brethren. Let's not say we love them. Let's do it. Let's have deeds that prove it. And let's do it in truth. Let's love them the right way, the Bible way that tells us how to love them. Rebuking them when they're in sin, comforting them when they're cast down, not singing songs to them when they be of a heavy heart, but practicing the whole Bible to them. Verse 19. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. Now this is getting good. This is what I have to close with tonight. Look at that verse. And hereby, hereby, what does hereby mean? By what I just explained to you in verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Because he's already said in verse 14, we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. Now he says in 19, and hereby we know that we are of the truth. We know that we are of the true religion. We know that we are one of the true children of God. We know that the true God is our God. We know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. We can stand before God and know that we are His because this book tells us God is love and when we show that love toward others, we're showing the character of God in our hearts. And we can know that we are of the truth and assure our hearts before Him. And thank the Lord that He already knows about your heart. Did you believe this morning when when it said to us, For your Father already knoweth what things ye have need of? Do you know what one of those things he knows that you have need of? And that's assurance in your heart and confidence. So he's telling it to you here. He sent John to write you an epistle so that you might know that you have eternal life. Now look, he knows what you're going to do. Verse 20, For if our heart condemn us, What's under consideration? We shall assure our hearts before him. Are there some people that even though they love their brethren, their hearts aren't assured before him? Yes, their hearts condemn them. Their hearts condemn them because they have the curse of a melancholy heart and they don't lay hold of the promises of God and believe them. And so we've got a verse to help them. For if our heart condemn us, if in spite of loving the brethren, your heart is still condemning you, God is greater than your heart and knoweth all things. He already knows those that are His. And so it doesn't really matter what your heart says to you because He's already told you that you are His. So tell your heart to shut up. Lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. God knows all things. And he's, He is greater than your heart. And do you know what? He has just told you the evidence of eternal life. And if you want to fight against it by saying, well, that's not hard enough. You know why it's not hard enough? Because you've already got a heart that finds it easy to do that. And you're looking for something hard so that you can please yourself. I'm talking about a twist. You know, if you can't follow me right now, it's because it's twisted. It's hard for me to even keep the sentences straight in my mind, but this is how our hearts work. Well, it couldn't be that simple. I love to love the brethren. Do you know why you love to love the brethren? Because he's put a seed in your heart. A seed in you that we just talked about earlier in 1 John chapter 3. For if our heart condemn us, if in spite of the evidence that John has already given you in this epistle that you have eternal life, if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart and He knows all things. The foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal The Lord knoweth them that are His. And that's what really counts, that God knows. If your heart wants to punish you from time to time, just remember something. I'm giving you some peace tonight. God is greater than your heart. If you've met up with the things I've told you so far, forget your heart and what it tells you. God is greater than your heart, and He knows all things. But now, for those of you that can get past your heart, look at what the next verse says. Beloved, look at the words. Beloved. If our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. We can be confident toward God if we can understand that our heart doesn't matter. What our heart is telling us is not the measure. God is greater than our heart. He knows all things, and it's what God knows that is the basis of eternal life. And beloved, if you can lay hold of the fact that it's not what your heart says, it's what God knows already, and it's what this evidence says about you in this chapter, then we can have confidence toward God. And that's the purpose of tonight's message. Salvation is only in the Lord Jesus Christ and to those that believe He is precious. And there's no fine line between those that think He is precious and those that think He's a rock of offense. And when your heart raises its little voice and tries to tell you that you're not good enough, you're not this, you've sinned too much, God doesn't really care about you, you were born in a Christian family, you don't really love the Lord like you ought to, tell your heart to shut up. Lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ Believe that God is greater than your heart, that He knows all things, and the foundation of God standeth sure. He knows that you're His, and He will not lose a single one. He has told you in this passage two measures of a child of God. You live a righteous life by not continuing in a lifestyle of sin. You're supposed to believe that. These things that I've written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life that you might believe in the name of the Son of God. Amen. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. And our confidence is so great toward God, we know He's ours. We know we're His. We know we've passed from death into life. We can go to Him in prayer in the next verse and receive whatsoever we ask of Him because we keep His commandments, the first part of chapter 3, and do those things that are pleasing in His sight by loving the brethren. You can have confidence toward God. Whosoever believeth on him shall not be confounded. Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. If ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. The world takes that verse and says, You unregenerate dead man in trespasses and sins, if you'll believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be born again. The Apostle Paul meant it. For those of you that are already born again, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, believe that He is the Son of God and the only Savior from sin, the way, the truth, and the life. And in that great day of judgment, you shall be saved. Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Amen. Amen.